Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Sunday, May the 15th, 2022. It is currently 4.14 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Now, this marks a brand new week of Bible study for our Bible study exercise series. I hope you've been participating in all of the Bible study exercises. If you're brand new to the series, just remember there's over 250 of them, 200. I don't even know the number anymore. I'd have to go look. They're easy to find. Download the Church One app, Church O-N-E, Church O-N-E. That's Church O-N-E, the Church One app on Apple or Apple devices. Once you download the app, remember it's a generic app used by lots of different broadcasters. Search for Theology Central. That pulls in all of our content. Then it will turn that app into the Theology Central app. Then just look for the series Bible Study Exercises, and you'll find all 200 plus of them. And the goal of the series is to move you from a passive listener to an active participant, getting you actually involved in Bible study. And what we have been doing, typically it's one passage of scripture for one week, one week dedicated to one passage of scripture, but we are spending about eight weeks in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, this is going to represent the 20, when this episode is over, we will have spent about 21 hours plus and studying, reading, discussing, struggling with Matthew chapter 24. I don't know how many how many episodes we're going to uh, ultimately do on Matthew 24, but I am promising you this, when we are done, hopefully you will be able to walk away going, okay, I may not have any definitive answers, but I think I understand Matthew 24 better than I've ever understood it prior to participating in the Bible study exercise. So that's what I want with every Bible study exercise. When we're done, we may not always have definitive answers because we can't answer what the text doesn't answer. We want to try to stay as true and as faithful to the text as possible. But I hope whenever we're done, you're like, you know what? I I learned a lot about the text. And if if we can accomplish that, then, um, well, hopefully we all benefit from it. And, And I'm doing the best I can and hopefully you are finding it to be helpful, right? But a brand new week of study, a brand new week dedicated to Matthew 24. So let's just get some of the preliminaries out of the way. First, if you have not been paying attention to the curriculum, I would really challenge you this week to sit down with something to drink, a Bible, a notebook, and just go through and read all of the curriculum on Matthew chapter 24. Let me go through each one here, okay? The first, the first one was Unit 2, Session 1, Stand Strong to the End. It's still available. Unit 2, Session 1, Stand Strong to the End. Then it was Unit 2, Session 2, Know What's Coming. Then it was uh, Unit 2, Session 3, Watch for Christ's Return. Then it was Unit 2, Session 4, Trust God's Timing. All right, and that was the one for this week. Uh, Unit 2, Session 4, Trust God's Timing, and this coming week, it's going to be Unit 2, Session 5, Keep Serving Faithfully. Keep Serving Faithfully. So please take the time to look at all of the curriculum, to read it, to see if they have a different approach, if you find anything interesting. Just take the time this week. That's kind of your homework this week 
Just make use of the curriculum. If you are listening, you're like, how do I get access to the curriculum? It's very simple. You email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's the word news, the letters if, newsif at yahoo.com or newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All you have to do is simply say, I would like access to the curriculum and I'll send you a link. That's it. You'll follow that link, register, and the curriculum is yours every single week. It's free. Typically, if you're paying for this curriculum, it would cost you uh, for each booklet, I think it's around $5 for each booklet uh, that covers a quarter and uh, uh, covers a three-month period. I think it's about $5. It may be $6, but it's free to you. We pay for it. It's free to you. So it's something that we like to make available, and if and, and and it's to supplement what we do. We don't always agree with everything in the curriculum. It's just to add more content. It's to give you more to look at. So please, you, you, you'll have access to the adult study guide, and you'll have access to the daily discipleship guide. Again, all free. We do thank those who uh, support us and helping us pay for this. Thank you. We don't ask anyone to do so. We don't put it behind a paywall. We will always do it for free. If we can't afford it, then we don't offer it. It's that simple. But we are grateful for those who help support it. Um, and uh, just, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And, but if you want access to it, don't feel bad. Ask. And if we, we have so many spots available, and if we fill those spots up, then we just up our subscription price so that we have more spots available. So if you want a spot, it's yours. And then every, every week you have the curriculum. It's right there. So please email me if you would like. I just really want to push that this week. Look at the curriculum. Read everything in the curriculum. If there's something you don't understand or if you have a question about it, you just send me you know, a screenshot. You can just send me a screenshot of the part of the curriculum and then tell me what your question is and we'll do episodes addressing things in the curriculum this week. But that's what I want you to do. Now, as far as Matthew 24 is concerned, some people are already working on this homework. This was previous homework, so I'm not going to mention it now. But if you haven't done your due diligence or you haven't participated, I'll remind you of this assignment. In Matthew chapter 24, we have clearly established that the hermeneutical key to understanding Matthew 24 has to be 70 AD because the context is Jesus walking out of the temple. His disciples walk up to him and go, hey, have you seen all of these buildings? And Jesus is like, yes, I've seen all of these buildings, but they're all going to be destroyed. And the disciples are like, wait, what, when, where, how, what are you talking about? And then Jesus gives them the signs pointing to the destruction of the temple. That has to be the primary hermeneutical key, all right? And that's not saying that at some point it may jump from things related to 70 AD to something in the future. But what has to drive your hermeneutic at the beginning is that's pointing to 70 AD. That's pointing to 70 AD. That was fulfilled leading up to 70 AD. That was fulfilled leading up to 70 AD, because that's the only thing that makes sense with the language that is used and the context that is provided in Matthew 24. All right. So we have applied that hermeneutical key, and we feel that we can prove that a good portion of this, no question, was fulfilled leading up to 70 AD. However, we have arrived at a very important verse, and that is verse 29. Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now stop right there. What tribulation is that referring to? 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days, there are those who say that tribulation is clearly talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. After the time of distress, after the tribulation of those days, referring to 70 AD, others say no, immediately after the tribulation, that is pointing to the future, the seven-year tribulation involving the tribulation and the great tribulation. It's pointing to the future. So some say it's pointing to 70 AD. Some say it's pointing to the seven-year tribulation in the future. Both are problematic. Here's the reason why. If you say that this tribulation is pointing to 70 AD, well, immediately after the destruction of the temple, (laughs) the sun will be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now, immediately, wait a minute, that did, some are going to say, that did not happen in 70 AD. Okay, that's going to be the immediate argument. Obviously, that did not happen, so clearly that can't be a reference to 70 AD. So, to try to possibly argue for a 70 AD interpretation, I gave everyone some homework. Look up everywhere between Genesis, right? Everywhere, basically, in the Old Testament, everywhere. Well, no, actually, I I said from Genesis to Revelation. I want you to look everywhere in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, that uses similar language about the sun being darkened, the moon not giving light, and the stars falling from heaven, and the powers of heaven being shaken. I want you to find every place where it seems to describe this type of event occurring. Now, what I want you to see is that numerous times in the Old Testament, This language appears to be used as occurring in relations to the destruction of a city or a nation. Now, clearly, that could not have happened over and over and over. Well, you remember that time in something B.C. when the the sun was darkened and the moon stopped giving light, stars fell from heaven, and the powers of heaven were shaken? we, We would know that has not happened in the past. So then why is there Old Testament language that seems to describe it happening? Some would argue that this language is figurative language used to describe the destruction of a city or a nation. That when a city or a nation is destroyed or a kingdom is destroyed, it is likened to the sun being darkened, the moon not giving light, the stars falling from heaven, and the powers of heavens being shaken. So if we can find plenty of passages in the Old Testament that uses this language, and we're like, that's referring to the destruction of Babylon, or to Tyre and Sidon, or to whatever city, state, nation, whatever, if we can say, well, wait a minute, we know that didn't actually happen literally, then is this figurative language to describe the destruction of a city and a country or a nation? And if it is, then are, are we to read Matthew 24, 29? to say that it's using that same figurative language to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. So immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem, well, that's how it describes the after effects. Is that that the case? Because clearly we don't believe that immediately after 70 AD, immediately after the destruction of the temple, literally the sun was darkened, literally the moon stopped giving light, literally stars fell from heaven, and literally the powers of heaven will be shaken. We, 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 we can only interpret that as possibly being some kind of figurative language. So I've challenged everyone to look it up. Some of you have already submitted your homework. You've done an excellent, excellent job. 
the goal tonight, the goal for this evening is we were going to talk more about that at the at Victory Baptist Church tonight, but we're only we're just doing live streaming tonight, so we're changing the way we're doing things. But that's still your homework. So Wednesday night at Victory Baptist Church, that's what we're going to work on. But so there's the 70 AD problem, and I've given you a possible solution. Now, here's the next problem. Some say, no, Matthew 24, 29 is pointing to the future. This is the future. It has nothing to do with 70 AD. Some would go so far to say that Matthew 24, none of it, none of it has anything to do with 70 AD. It's all the future, right? We, we, we reviewed a sermon by John MacArthur but made these claims, right? That these signs are not even to the disciples. They're to some future generation who's going to see, well, a future something, that this has nothing to do with 70 AD. He went very futuristic in its approach. Well, let's say, let's apply the futuristic approach. Let's say immediately after the tribulation of those days is not a reference to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Let's say that is a direct reference to a future tribulation. Well, then let me ask this question. I think you know where I'm going. So you're telling me at the end of the seven-year tribulation, The sun is going to be darkened. The moon is not going to give light. Stars are going to fall from heaven. And the powers of heavens are going to be shaken. And that happens not during the tribulation. That happens after the tribulation. If that is your approach, even if it's not your approach, here's what you need to do. So here's another, I guess, kind of another assignment. So you need to look at the curriculum this week. You need to finish your assignment on figuring out if that language is used to describe the destruction of cities and states and using it in a figurative way. Or, And then the next thing I want you to do is I want you to look for any verse that you think would prove that those things happen after the tribulation. If so, then what tribulation is this referring to? This Because typically the way it works is you have the seven-year tribulation. At the conclusion of that, Christ comes back, right? Destroys his enemies. Then you have the millennial kingdom. So you're saying when Christ comes back, when the, when the skies open and Christ comes back, is that when that's going to occur? Right? So, so in other words, you've got to figure out where does this fit in in your chronology, your end times chronological chart, where does this fit in? The end of the tribulation, then the sun, the moon, stars. Is, is this a literal thing that's going to happen? When does it take place? Where, where would you place it? You've got to give me some scriptures that would give you where you would fit this in. So here's what we're going to do this afternoon. If you have a notebook, grab it. If you have a Bible, grab it. I would strongly recommend getting something to drink. Because of what we're about to do, I want to say get something very strong to drink, but I don't drink alcohol, so I wouldn't tell you to do that. But you're, we're going to feel like we need a drink by the time this is over. We're going to go back to John MacArthur. Since John MacArthur established in our previous sermon reviews that he's all, that Matthew 24 is all about the future. Forget 70 AD. It's all about the future. Well, clearly, by the time you get to verse 29... He's obviously very much now pointing everything to the future, the future, the future, the future, the future. Well, what is he, how is he going to fit this into any kind of chronology? Because this is after the tribulation of those days. What is he going to do with it? 
That's what we're going to find out because I like us hearing as many different positions as possible. We have been studying the preterist position during this series. We're now stu- we're looking at the futuristic perspective. We're looking, and, I, and I'm wanting you to look at the curriculum to get their perspective. I want you to get as many different perspectives, and then we've got to try to figure out which ones make sense, which ones do not. All right, so that's 16 minutes of, of, of getting you ready for this week, but I hope you're ready. All right, are you ready for this? Here we go. We're going to listen to us. We're going to start reviewing a sermon by John MacArthur. Obviously, I'm going to break in, offer criticism, analysis, critique, questions, struggles, as we always do. So there's no way we're going to finish this in this episode. You already know that. We're going to make it as far as we can. We're just going to sit back and just kind of enjoy. Hopefully, we'll just have a good time doing this. Um, I, and remember, I have no clue what we're getting ready to hear. I don't review. I don't listen to the sermons we review in advance because that turns this into a performance instead of, uh, the, again, the way this is basically supposed to work is Sunday afternoon. Now, I know some people on Sunday afternoons, they take naps. I don't know what they do. I don't know what people do on Sunday afternoons, but I think Sunday afternoon is a good time to spend some time, well, listening to sermons, catching up on Bible reading, doing some scripture memory work, spending time feeding yourself as much spiritually as possible on Sunday, because in many cases, Monday, you're right back to the routine, right back to work, right back to, you know, homeschooling, right back to whatever all your responses. So Sunday sometimes gives you that extra time that you can really feed yourself spiritually to sustain you through the rest of the week. So we're going to use this time to sit down together and listen to a sermon. And I, I don't know where it's going. So my reactions are going to be, you know, in real time. And if you're listening to me using the Spreaker app, you can you can put your comments in the chat or you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, or you can post them in the Discord channel. I will try to check all the sources by the time I'm done to interact with any of your comments, whether email, Discord, or in the uh, chat on the, on, the, on the Spreaker app. I will try to check all of them, but the main thing is we're just going to see how he's going to handle this. I'm just curious. <laughs> I'm really curious. So let's jump in. Here we go. John MacArthur, I think this was preached in the 80s. I could be wrong. Maybe it was in the 90s. It's an older sermon, and uh, we'll just see what he has to say. Here we go. This morning, we come in our study of God's Word to a very marvelous and thrilling passage for Christians. And so I invite you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 24 as we look at verses 29 through 31. A great text on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of us who know and love the Lord and those of us who study His Word are very much aware of the fact that the world will end, the world as man knows it, the world as man runs it, will end with the glorious coming of Jesus Christ to earth. From okay, I got to just interrupt because this is His, this is his per, perspective on Matthew 24 is that it's a text about the second coming. I mean, 70 AD, he just pretty much says, I mean, he even goes so far to say the signs mentioned in Matthew 24 are not even for the disciples. I mean, we talked about this in the last sermon we reviewed. So he's got the futuristic position on, on lockdown. That's, that's his view. We've looked at, we're looking at it from a preteristic perspective using preterism and using a book on preterism. 
So we've got that. We've got the perspective put forth in the curriculum, and now we've got MacArthur's. So you're getting your money's worth. I mean, you are getting your money's. Oh, wait, you don't have to pay for any of this. Yes, okay. You're getting definitely your money's worth because all of these hours and hours and hours of instruction and and discussion has been absolutely free. And hopefully, I'm hoping that you, um, well, I'm hopefully you, you, you're taking advantage of it. And I'm, 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 hope, I'm hopeful you're grateful for it as well, because it does take a lot of work to put all of this together. But I think we're doing, I think we're doing a, a very important service here, trying to help us people figure out exactly how to handle Matthew 24. But so it's for him, it's second coming, second coming, second coming, second coming, second coming. Let's see how his taking this as second coming how does he handle verse 29? That's that's the main verse I'm, consi- I'm I want us to focus on today. We'll, we'll see what he does with it. From heaven. It is his second coming. The first time he came in humility, the first time he came to die on a cross, next time he comes in glory and he comes to reign as king of kings and lord of lords. The Lord wanted to instruct his disciples on the matter of his second coming. And he specifically spoke of it in these three verses in Matthew 24. I want you to notice them as I read them. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give its light. And the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He shall send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other." There in very clear, concise, straightforward, understandable terms, the Lord Himself tells us about the greatest event in anticipation of any believer, and that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. He came once, He will come again. In fact, as He was ascending, it tells us in Acts chapter 1, leaving the earth after His first coming, He ascended up into heaven physically, bodily, taken away in a cloud. And two angels came and said, this same Jesus who is taken up from you shall so come in like manner as you have seen Him go into heaven." In other words, as He went away, so will He return. Now, I think that's a very valid point, using Acts there to support that. I'm in agreement, and this causes problems with those who are extreme preterists, who believe that basically everything was fulfilled in 70 AD, even the return of Jesus, and He returned in a spiritual way. That goes against the idea in Acts, Jesus is going to return the same way He ascended, in a bodily, physical form. So to say that Jesus came back in some spiritual way in 70 AD, are you saying that there's no future return? Because that would not work. So you'd have to, you know, you'd have to be, you have to modify that in some way if someone was going to take that that position. So, so far, so good. I just want to know, how does verse 29, and again, he doesn't, he's not going to apply in any way to 70 AD. So how does this fit into your end time chronology? How does this work? So let's see what he does here. Physically, bodily, in clouds, just the way he went away, the very same Jesus in the very same way. 
And since that time, believers have had hearts filled with hope through all of the history of the church, looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in writing Titus, said in chapter 2, verse 11, "...the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for that blessed hope, even the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a people of His own zealous of good works." What He said there is, we who are saved should live righteously, soberly, denying ungodliness, denying worldly lusts, and looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, as much as we are to live obedient lives, as much as we are to live righteous lives, as much as we are to live lives where priorities are set by God's standards, so much are we, are we to live lives that focus on the return of Jesus Christ. We are to live in the light of the coming of Christ. When this vile body, says Paul to the Philippians, shall be changed and made like His glorious body. That is our hope. That is our glory. And I think you can already get the idea, and, and based off the other sermon we, we reviewed of John MacArthur on Matthew 24, he's at, he's at this point in his series. I mean, he didn't even really do it in the, in the first one. He didn't really even establish why. He didn't even try to prove why we should just basically ignore 70 AD and everything here is future. He, he kind of gave a little bit of a hint, but he didn't give us a lot of information. But his basic approach is, hey, none of this has anything to do with 70 AD. We're going to look to the future, the future, the future, the future. So at this point, don't expect him to break into any apologetic going, here's the reason. Here's the reason we need to look uh, at this from a future perspective and forget 70 AD. Now, you could argue that the language used in verse 29 and 30 and 31 clearly seems to be future. I can understand that, but he's not going to engage too much with a preterist maybe argument against that. Um, just remember, remember the preterist is going to play that their, their ace up the sleeve the race up the sleeve when you get down to verse 34, Matthew 24, 34. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And then it, people say, well, 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 wait a minute. It's not talking about that generation. It's talking about a yet defined future generation when they see these things. So, I mean, the preterist is going to say, what are you talking about? Clearly, it has to be the generation he's referring to, the generation he's talking to, the generation who asked for the signs. It has to be that generation. And so then people go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Now, maybe when he gets further down into his series, maybe he will address verse 34. We'll probably find time to review that at some point. But just so, just it's just interesting that he doesn't seem even the rem, remotely concerned with having to prove that this is future. He's just convinced that it is, and just dogmatically declaring. Or my approach is: Wait a minute, we've got a lot of issues here in this text, and there's a lot. There's been nothing but disagreement on this text. It seems like for two thousand years of church history. So let's let's look at all the perspectives and try to figure out the truth. That's always my approach. Let's hear every perspective and try our best to see what the truth is. But 
I just want to know what he's going to do with verse 29. That's all we care about in this review is what does he do with verse 29? That's all I want to accomplish here. So let's see if he'll get there. Here we go. Now, the world is very familiar with the circumstances and the features of Christ's first coming. The world is very familiar with Bethlehem, with the manger, with shepherds and wise men and a star and Herod. The world is very familiar with Joseph and Mary and gold and frankincense and myrrh and the song of the angels. They pretty well have that story all down pat. But the world is far less familiar with the story of His second coming, with all of its features and all of its attendant circumstances. And yet the prophets have given us, including Jesus Himself, the greatest of all prophets, very clear instruction as to the character, the features of the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. And in the three verses I just read to you, our Lord Himself describes His second coming. Not all of the elements of it, but the very moment that it occurs, the sign that it has arrived. And in that instruction, there is so much that in one session we could never cover it all. As brief as His words are, typically, the Lord says very precisely and very concisely what He wants to say, but has a way of opening up a universe of truth in the marvelous ability that He has to choose words. And so while we can read what we can read and understand it, it is beyond our ability to grasp the implications of all that He says, and we feel like little children trying to understand complexity when we try to get all there is to get. But let's see what the Lord will show us as we look at these three incredible verses. Now the best way to go through this is just to sort of hang your thoughts on some key words, all right? The first key word is sequence, the sequence of the second coming, verse 29. Okay, now that's good. He, he's going to put it in a sequence. Now if, if he, we go with the idea, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to verify something here because I think this is important. And I'm glad he's doing this, okay? I didn't, I was hoping that this is what he was going to do. I did not know, because I don't, I don't listen to uh, these in advance. Sequence, a particular order in which related events, movements, or things follow each other. So he just said the key word here is sequence. So he's going to give us the particular order in which related events, movements, or things follow each other. That's where I think the issue is because you're saying if we put this in some kind of order, so after the tribulation, these things supposedly happen. How does that fit in? Now, clearly, if it, now just think we have two sequences to look at. Now he's going to ignore the first one. The first sequence would be, okay, immediately after 70 AD, the moon, the stars, and all of that happens. How do we, how do we justify that? Well, then we have to say the moon, the stars, and all of that is symbolic language to describe the destruction of a city or a station or a nation or a kingdom. And we think that there's passages in the Old Testament that would justify that reading. All right, so we're already working on that. That's your previous homework, okay? We will get to that Wednesday night at Victory Baptist Church. But if you believe that this is not anything to do with 70 AD, that it's future, then you've got to figure out how does this sequence work in your eschatology. For example, most people believe that there is a seven-year tribulation, right? If there's a seven-year literal tribulation, at the end of that tribulation, 
All of that happens to the sun, moon, and stars. Most people would say that happens during the tribulation, not after. So what sequence, how is he going to establish the sequence and how is he going to address this? That's what we're waiting for. Here we go. We may not even have to worry about reviewing this entire sermon. That's all I want to hear. I want to hear a futurist, someone who views this from a futuristic perspective, give me the sequence. What is the sequence MacArthur is going to provide? Because I know he does hold to that seven-year literal tribulation, Christ returns, and a literal thousand-year reign. So since he holds to that eschatology, then we're going to see how this would fit in, what, how this would fit into that sequence. Here we go. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, you don't have to be Phi Beta Kappa to figure that out. It's pretty obvious. People say, when is the second coming? When is the second coming? It's a very simple answer. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. That's what it says. Okay, so now we know how he interprets that. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Not he is not referring to tribulation there as referring to 70 AD. He's referring to this tribulation as a future tribulation, and Jesus will come back after that tribulation, all right? Now, just note that some people, some translations don't use the word tribulation. I got a Bible right here. Immediately after the distress of those days, all right? Now, if you put the word distress there, then you may not be tempted to immediately associate that with a seven-year tribulation. Then you, could, uh, then you would have to figure out what distress is that referring to. So is that referring to the seven-year tribulation, or is it referring to a time of distress? And if it is, which time of distress? See, they're, they're, he's saying it doesn't require you to be smart. It's obvious. No, I need to know what this tribulation of those days is referring to. You're just, you're just inserting your view. This is the future seven-year tribulation. But some translations don't even refer to it as tribulation as a time of distress. What time of distress? Some would say, no, that's referring to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So clearly it's not as clear as MacArthur wants to pretend that it is because there's been... Nothing but disagreement on it and for 2,000 years of church history. So let, let's see, though, what, what he does with this. A very clear chronological indicator for us that the Lord's second coming in glory to set up His kingdom will follow immediately this time period called the tribulation. Now, somebody says, well, there's a lot of tribulation. Tribulation is a Greek word, philipsis. It means uh, trouble, difficulty, tribulation, distress. And you could say, well, Israel has always been in, di in distress and tribulation, and the church has always had distress and tribulation, and the world has always had distress and tribulation, and that's why Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, not just any tribulation, but the tribulation of those days. You say, what days? The days just described in verses 4 through 28. Those takes us back to some days that He has just described. What are the days he's just described? They are days of great tragedy. In fact, they are so severe that verse 21 says this, For then shall be not just tribulation, but what? Great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. It isn't just any tribulation he's referring to. It is the tribulation that is the worst tribulation the world has ever known.
please note, he just, he's obviously doesn't believe verse four, any of it has anything to do with 70 AD. So he doesn't, in his mind, this tribulation cannot refer to 70 AD, cannot refer to 70 AD. So, all right. So, so we know where he's going with it, but is he going to limit this to a seven-year tribulation or the last half of the seven-year tribulation, sometimes known as the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years? If he does, then you're telling me that at the end of the three and a half years, that's when the sun, moon, and stars, and all of that happens? Because most would say that happens during. That's what we're waiting to see how he's going to handle. He's referring to a period of time which is the worst period of time the world has ever undergone. You say, what period of time is that? Well, it's a period of time begun with a very special event, verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whosoever reads, let him understand. Now remember, MacArthur does not believe the abomination of desolation took place in 70 AD, which I believe there would be great historical evidence to prove that. Read Josephus's description of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And like, I think that's the abomination of desolation. He believes that it's a future event where the temple will be rebuilt, the Antichrist will walk in, declare himself to be God. So he believes that that it that the tribulation really starts with that. Event. So you clearly he's going to give us this idea of a seven-year future tribulation that begins with the abomination of desolation. All future. None of this has anything to do with 70 AD. So I know I keep just repeating that over and over and over, but I want you to understand that we're, we're getting a futuristic interpretation of Matthew 24, completely ignoring 70 AD, even though I believe the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and that context is the, histor- is the hermeneutical key. He believes it's not the hermeneutical key. He believes the hermeneutical key is not Jesus walking out of the temple predicting it's going to be destroyed. He believes the hermeneutical key is the abomination of desolation, which is not the destruction of the temple. It's someone coming in and claiming to be God. So he completely doesn't think this has anything to do with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, which is weird because that's Jesus' key prediction is that the temple is going to be destroyed. (laughs) So it's really weird. Now, Jesus makes a prediction about the destruction of the temple, but this has nothing to do with the destruction of the temple. This has everything to do with uh, the Antichrist coming in and desecrating the temple. So it's just really kind of, it just shows you how people can just do whatever. People can do many different things with the word of God. But let's see, I'm I'm just interested in the sequence. So let's go through this. And we talked about the fact that that event called the abomination of desolation, it is a desecration of that which is sacred. It is a ruination of that which is dedicated to God. That triggers this great tribulation period. You remember what we said? Israel in the end time will be in their land. They will rebuild the temple. They will be worshiping God. They will be protected by the Antichrist. But in the middle of the seven-year period that Daniel says he makes a pact with them, in Daniel 7, he says in the middle, pardon me, in Daniel 9, he says in the middle of that period, the, the Antichrist will break the covenant and he will abominate, that is, he will desecrate, he will blaspheme the sacred place of the Jews. He will tear out the altar to God, and He will establish an altar to Himself. He will make Himself the God of the world. And this is described to us not only by the prophet Daniel, but also by John in the Revelation. You have to ask yourself, so does that temple get destroyed? 
where there's not one stone left left on another? I mean, it's just so weird. Matthew 24 is literally about the destruction of the temple, and we know that happens in 70 AD. MacArthur has turned it into, no, it's not the destruction of the temple. It's the desecration of the temple by the Antichrist. Well, wouldn't, wouldn't the, what do you call the ruination and desecration of a temple when someone comes in, Titus, 70 AD, and literally lays it to way, destroys it and carries the things within the temple off? What, is that not ruination, desecration, destruction? But it's just weird that this is the future. So I guess if you're, if you're going to make the entire Matthew 24 chapter about the future, then you have to believe that the future temple is going to be destroyed and not, there's not going to be one stone left on another. And that, that's the key. I guess you can make it work. You can make it work when the earth is destroyed and the new heavens and new earth is established that the temple will be destroyed. But I, it just seems odd that, that, that the 70 AD just almost gets just obliterated from the context, even though that's clearly the context. It's just, it's just kind of odd to me from just a hermeneutical standpoint. But let again, I want to know the sequence here. He becomes the one to be worshipped, and therefore he desecrates, he abominates. And when that happens, and he calls the whole world to worship him, then the, the signal has come that the tribulation has begun. And the events of the tribulation are generally described in verses 4 through 14. It's a time of deception. It's a time of war. It's a time of famine and earthquake. It's a time of persecution and hatred. It is a time of false prophecy. It is a time when evil is so rampant that... Please note, in his, in his hermeneutic, verses 4 through 14 is not pointing to 70 A.D. 4 through 14 happens after the abomination of desolation. So according to the sequence of MacArthur... Verse 15 happens. That's the abomination of desolation. That kicks off the tribulation, and that describes the event of verses 4 through 14. So 4 through 14 doesn't happen before 15. 15 happens first, then 4 through 14 follows verse 15. That's the sequence that he is establishing. 15 happens first. Boom, abomination of desolation. 4 through 14 describes everything that happens after the abomination of desolation. This is, an, this is the sequence. This is his hermeneutical sequence that he has placed upon the text. He doesn't justify that order. He just says that's the way it is. 15 is the event that triggers all of the things in 4 through 14. So 4 through 14 are not a sign. They are not really a sign because the abomination of desolation is the sign, 4 through 14 are the things that happened after the sign. The sign is the abomination of desolation. It's really, so 4 through 14 is not telling you what to look for, because it once those things start happening, you're already going to know they're going to happen, because you just saw the abomination of desolation. It's really an... Uh, and a complete upheaval of the entire chapter. It's so bizarre. Just trying to follow, like, so 4 through 14 are not, the disciples ask, what are the signs? 4 through 14 are typically read as the signs, but according to MacArthur, those aren't the signs. 15 is the sign. Once you see the abomination of desolation, 4 through 14 are just what occurs after the sign of the abomination of desolation. It's really 
an, it's a complete different way of reading the text. You can determine what you agree, if how you agree with this hermeneutical approach or not. I, I think the hermeneutical, his hermeneutical approach makes verse 15 the hermeneutical key, and I believe the hermeneutical key is found in verses 1, uh, verses 1, 2, and 3, which is, hey, when is the temple going to be destroyed? Well, let me give you the signs, and they point to 70 AD, because verses 4 through 14... I believe verses 4 through 15, verses 4, even past 15, clearly all occurred before 70 AD. And we've already clearly established that using historical facts and historical records, all right? So let's, let's continue. Many people who appear to be religious will defect from religion and abandon themselves to evil. In other words, it's going to be the worst time the world has ever known. It'll be a time we see in verse uh, 21 and following, uh, without an equal, and unless the days were shortened, that is, the, t the time of daylight was condensed, no one would survive, false prophets everywhere, and terrible sinful corruption described like the carcass of a dead animal in verse 28. And so there's coming on the world this time of tribulation like no other time a time of gross evil like no other time, a time of murder, a time of slaughter. And Antichrist is going to try to slaughter all the Jews. He's going to try to slaughter all those who would name the name of Christ. And that is why verse 16 says, when you see this initiating event take place and the Antichrist sets up his idol, which is himself, in the temple, then you better flee to the mountains because Judea, where Jerusalem is, is going to be the center of his attack as he tries to wipe out God's people Israel and any believing people from among the Gentiles who happen to be there. Or you could say, when you see the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, run for your lives, which the language would fit that perfectly. See, it's just, it's just, it's either 70 AD or it's the future and everyone just, it's just amazing. Like he, he's not even considering the possibility. He's already just, he, he is committed to this weird reading of the chapter, completely ripping, forming a new sequence. I don't even think the sequence is even justified by the text, but that's the way he's established it. Okay. I'm still waiting for the sequence of verse 29. That's what I'm waiting for, because immediately after the tribulation, let's see what he does here. So it's going to be such a time like no other time. You better run, and you better run fast, and hope you're not pregnant, and hope you're not carrying a little baby, and hope it isn't winter and raining, and hope it isn't the Sabbath so you get stoned by some legalists for running. You better hope you can get out, because a slaughter is going to come. See, so I guess in the future, Sabbath laws will be reinstituted, and if you break the Sabbath, you'll be stoned to death. Again, that wouldn't that fit more the time of 70 AD in the Jewish Sabbath laws at that time? It just fits so perfectly with 70 AD, but no, in the future, Sabbath laws are going to be reinstituted, and I guess they're going to reinstitute stoning, I guess, I guess. <laughs> so, all right. Like no slaughter in the history of the world. And we've gone through all that detail in the last few weeks. Now, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Not just any tribulation, but the tribulation that we have seen discussed in verses 4 through 28. Immediately after that, that is the time 
That is the sequence for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember that the disciples feel it must be very near because they know the Lord is the Messiah, because He has cleansed the temple. You remember throughout the money changers and the buyers and the sellers. Because He has promised that the whole temple will be torn down and not one stone will be left upon another. They believe then that He is going to come and wipe out hypocritical false Judaism. He is going to wipe out the false religious leaders. He is going to purge the nation. And because they've already seen Him cleanse the inside by throwing everybody out, and He has just predicted that the stones are going to be torn down, they believe His coming is very, very near. And with very anxious hearts, they have sat down with Him on the Mount of Olives... And they have said, Lord, how near is it? And what is the sign we look for that you're going to come into your full parousia, your full presence, and be king? And they must believe it's only a matter of days now before this is all going to happen. And the Lord says, I'll answer your question. It can't happen until immediately after this time period. And they don't realize that this time period is thousands of years into the future from where they are. See, he interprets the entire chapter that, hey, I'll give you the signs when this is going to occur. And I'm not talking about 70 AD. I'm not talking about the destruction of the temple. See, they, they interpret it that Jesus is saying, forget about the destruction of the temple, even though what that's what he just predicted. It is such a, a strained reading of the text. No, they, they want to know when the destruction of the temple, and he's like, no, I'm going to tell you what you're looking for, and it's thousands. Of, in other words, you're all going to be dead. So none of these signs are for you. None of this is pointing to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And it's, it literally completely ignores the... It's so weird that preachers can say, context, 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 but we're going to ignore the context here. <laughs> okay? Like... And, and this is not about your system of eschatology. I'm not here arguing against anyone's system of eschatology. What I'm arguing is I don't care about your team. Like you can have your colors, dispensationalist, premillennialist, pre-trib, you, you, post-millennial, amillennial. You, you can have your gang colors and, and, and be all worried and who can be a part of your club and who you have to jump out or jump in. Okay, you can play that game. I don't care about your team. I don't care about your gang. I care about how in the world are you reading this text, literally ignoring the context? How are you literally ignoring the sequence and make 15 the event and 4 through 14 following 15 when 4 through 14 appears to be the signs leading up to the destruction of the temple? It's so just... I, I, I'm just like, I just sit here going, what in the world, man? Like what these, this seems to go against every rule I've ever learned in Bible interpretation, but okay. But we're still waiting. I want to know the sequence. 29 provides a sequence challenge. You're telling me the sun, the moon, the stars, all of that's going to happen after the tribulation. Many would go to Revelation and go, wait a minute, here's sun, moon, and stars. That seems to be happening in the middle of the tribulation. So how does this happen after the tribulation? Does it happen twice? That's what, that's, that's what I want to know. That's, that's all I want to know. All right, here we go. But our Lord makes it very clear that it isn't until that time period after which the second coming occurs. Now, you remember that we said that there will be a terrible slaughter among the Jews, and Zechariah says two out of three will be killed and only a third will be preserved. 
God will save a third of them. The rest are going to die in this terrible holocaust. There will also be the saving of 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from every tribe according to Revelation 7 so that they can evangelize the world. And no matter how the Antichrist tries or anybody else tries, he can't kill them. Revelation 7 says they're sealed and protected. Also in the 14th chapter of Revelation, read about them. So the Lord's going to spare some of those people, but it's going to be such a terrible time unless there is supernatural protection. In the case of the general group, it seems as though Michael, chapter 12, is going to be the one who comes down to take care of them and and to sweep them away into safety. In the case of the 144,000 Jewish missionaries to reach the world, God Himself supernaturally protects them, but the rest are going to be vulnerable to disaster and death, and so they are told in verse 16 to run. It won't last long. The period of great tribulation lasts how long? Three and a half years, that's all. And immediately after that, the second coming. Now let's go to a second word. The first word is sequence. The second one is set up. Set up. How does the Lord set up this event? You could use the word scene, scenario, stage, but the Lord sets the stage for the second coming. It is a marvelous thing. Verse 29 again. The sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not give its light, the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken." Well, I mean, this is just incredible. The whole universe as we know it, as we experience it, begins an instant disintegration. In verse 25 of Luke 21. Luke, writing basically on the same Olivet Discourse, adds more things that Jesus said. Each writer sort of fills out the fullness of what the Lord said. And Luke says, there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, terrible confusion, the sea and the waves roaring and men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken." Now if you add Luke to Matthew, you've got a pretty dramatic scene. It sounds like the tribulation. (laughs) That's what it sounds like. It sounds like what you would read in Revelation where people would identify, this is all going to happen during the tribulation. Remember, this is immediately after the tribulation. I'm still trying to follow the sequence. Let's, let's Let's see where this is going to go. It isn't just the sun darkened. It isn't just the moon not giving its light. It isn't just the stars falling. It isn't just the powers of the heaven being shaken as if the earth is detached from that. It's also on the earth. And the thing is so dramatic and so cataclysmic that it says men's hearts will fail them for fear. The Greek actually says men will expire. Men will expire. And it's just a simple way of saying they're going to drop dead everywhere. People are going to literally drop dead out of total terror. Their hearts will stop. Apapsukyo, which is to say to breathe out. They will breathe out their last. They'll die. When the Lord comes back in judgment, He will only slay with the sword that proceeds out of His mouth the wicked that haven't already died of a heart attack. That seems to be he's connecting this to Revelation 19. So in Revelation 19, 
Do we have the sun, the moon, the stars? Do we have all of that happening in Revelation 19? Or do we have that being recorded happening earlier in Revelation? How is he going to fit the, fit, fix the sequence? Because he keeps saying immediately after the tribulation of those days, and he's identified this tribulation as really the last three and a half years of the tribulation period known as the great tribulation. That's the tribulation. So at the conclusion of the tribulation, the sun, the moon, the stars, how is he going to fit this together when supposedly during the tribulation, we have issues with the sun, the moon, and the stars? How is it? I'm still waiting. I'm waiting. I'm I'm hoping there's a good answer. I really don't know. I don't, I'm not trying to set anything up because I don't know what's going to happen. Because remember, I don't review these first because I like the, these reviews to be in real time and, and we're listening together. So here we go. Let's, let's wait for it. Or died in sheer terror so that their functions just shut down. The fear was so totally gripping. I mean, it's hard for us to understand this and to conceive it. One key statement is at the end of verse 29 that sort of helps you with all of it. The powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Now, in the heavens, which encompasses the whole universe, everything is held together by power. There is a, there is a control, controlling influence. In fact, we know what that power is because in Hebrews 1 it says that the sun upholds all things by the what? Word of His power. That's a good cross-reference. That's a, that's a great cross-reference. I like that. That's a good cross-reference, all right? Because if the earth is going to be shaken, and if the one, and then we identify the one who holds it, okay, okay, I, I, I'm liking this. I, I, think, I think, I'm trying to think of a way how I can fix this sequence, because if we can fi- fix this sequence, then we have a possible way to accept at least a partial futuristic approach to some of these verses, okay? So I'm waiting to see. Here we go. It is, it is God Himself in the, in the Son who holds things together. Just as He created everything, He holds thing to, things together so that gravity doesn't fluctuate, so that orbits don't fluctuate, and we can send off little things into space and clutter up the universe with all of our little tinker toys, and we know where they're going to go and where they're going to stop and what they're going to do in their rotation and what they're going to do in their orbits, and we can calculate all of that because of the unchanging, fixed powers of the heavens so that bodies move consistently at all times and they do what is predicted for them to do. Our scientists can even mathematically predict things years, centuries, thousands of years into the future because they have such uniformity from the past. The heavenly bodies are controlled by the upholding power of the Word of God. But all of a sudden, the Lord lets go, and the powers that normally hold the universe together no longer do that, and you have helter-skelter chaos with all of the heavenly bodies at random careening through space. And the earth becomes a victim of this incredible breakdown of the whole universe. Now, specifically, he says, the sun goes black. The implications of that are just staggering, staggering, no sunlight. And man, of course, cannot survive without that. The temperature change is cataclysmic. And then the moon doesn't give its light, obviously, because it's reflected from the sun. The tides are instantly chaos. The stars begin to tumble out of their places. In Revelation, it says the heavens are rolled up like a scroll, and the stars begin to fall like shaking overripe figs off of a fig tree. 
the whole universe begins to fall apart, to disintegrate. Okay, he says, he just said in Revelation talks about the stars falling. Okay, now, so that's where he's attaching this event to. So let's do something here. I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to the Blue Letter Bible app. Okay, I'm going to go to the Blue Letter Bible app. I'm going to go here. I'm going to type in stars. All right, so here's what we have. Revelation 6.13, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. That's Revelation 6.13. That's not the end of the tribulation. Revelation 8.12, and the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars are, uh, uh, so as the third part of them was darkened, and they Day and, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. So now you have something happening to the sun, the moon, and the stars. Well, wait a minute. In Revelation 6.13, stars are falling from heaven. So what, what's going on? Revelation 12.1, we have the woman with the stars under her feet. Revelation 12.4, and the tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. All right. So none of that is super helpful. So he he just talked about the the uh I don't know which I see he gave a reference to Revelation. I don't know which one he's giving a reference to, but you see where I'm getting frustrated because wait a minute, this is supposedly the end of the tribulation. If you're making re- if you're cross-referencing verses prior to the end of the tribulation, then how is Matthew 24 saying this is going to happen at the end of the tribulation when it seems clear that the verses you're going to cross-reference are going to be talking about what's happening during the tribulation? Can the moon, sun, and stars basically go away, stop working, fall apart during the tribulation, and then show up, show back up, so that they can stop working again at the end of the tribulation? (laughs) Someone's got to get, you got to fix the sequence here. Let's see what he does. I know we're over an hour, just stay with me. We will at least bring this to some kind of conclusion. I suppose I... A faint way of understanding this would be to read to you a section from a book by Velikovsky, who approaches some of the scientific phenomena relative to the earth. And he, he says that if, for example, a heavenly body was loose in space and it happened to pass close to the earth and just caused the earth to tilt a fraction on its axis, here's what would happen, and I quote, At that very moment, an earthquake would make the earth shudder. Air and water would continue to move through inertia. Hurricanes would sweep the earth and the seas would rush over the continents, carrying gravel and sand and marine animals and casting them on the land. Heat would be developed. Rocks would melt. I love this. He just goes to a book. (laughs) He goes to a book about here's what could happen. I still want to know how is this happening at the end of the tribulation? Because in Revelation, just again, we'll just go to the sun. All right. I see here. Revelation 6.12, and behold, when he had opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became blood. Revelation 7.16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. Revelation 8.12, and the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten. 
So you've got things happening to the sun, the moon, and the stars, it seems like numerous times during the tribulation. So how in the world is something happening to them at the end of the tribulation? (laughs) That's the sequence you have to give. But let's go back and listen to all the bad stuff that's going to happen. He's just not giving me the sequence. Volcanoes would erupt, lava would flow from fissures in the ruptured ground and cover vast areas, mountains would spring up from the plains and would travel and climb on the shoulders of other mountains, causing faults and rifts, lakes would be tilted and emptied, rivers would change their beds, large land areas with all their inhabitants would slip under the sea, forests would burn and the hurricane and wild seas would wrest them from the ground on which they grew and pile them branch and root in huge heaps. Seas would turn into deserts, their waters flowing away." It's inconceivable. The earth is held together by the power of the heavens, and when that power is not there, the chaos is going to be indescribable. And how God can even preserve life for a few moments or days a few weeks, so that the kingdom can be established is only by His supernatural overruling of the chaos of those natural forces. See, now those are clues. He's clearly placing this event happening in Revelation 19. Well, what in the world is happening to the sun, moon, and stars and between Revelation 4 and Revelation 18? Because according to Matthew 24, this happens at the end of the tribulation. So he's saying that this happens in Revelation 19. Can, can please, please. He's got, he's got to explain it. He's got to explain it. Disintegrating. It's, it's something we can only imagine. Now you say, in other words, the Lord is saying that just before Christ comes, this is going to take place, that's right. That sets the scene. Now this isn't anything new. I want you to go with you with your Bible back to the 13th chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 13, and I want to show you something fascinating. Many people believe that the Isaiah 13 passage should be related to Babylon's destruction, that it is hyperbole speaking of the destruction of the city and the kingdom of Babylon. But it has to be far more than that. Yes, Isaiah is referring to Babylon. Yes, he does predict Babylon's destruction. But as so very often in the mind of the prophet, there is an historical fulfillment and there is a prophetic one as well far into the future. And Isaiah simply sees in the destruction of Babylon for sin a microcosm of what will happen in the devastation and destruction of the whole world in the coming of the Lord. Notice verse 6, wail. For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Please notice hermeneutic, because hermeneutic is, okay, yeah, Babylon's being referenced here, but it jumps. It goes to the future because it's going to use language here. Now, preterists are going to be like, no, it's using symbolic language to describe the destruction of Babylon, and that same symbolic language is used to describe the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but he's, he's not even going to approach that. He's going to just, this is going to be future. But again, I need to know, this is supposed to happen at the end of the tribulation. That, that, but how do you have sun, moon, and stars and all of these things happening during the tribulation? Therefore shall all hands be faint and every man's heart shall melt and they shall be afraid. 
Pains and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain like a woman that, that has birth pain. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger. Here's a very key thing. To lay, the Hebrew says, the earth. It isn't just Babylon. It is the earth that is in view here, desolate, and He will destroy the sinners out of it. Now watch this. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in its going forth, and the moon shall not cause its light to shine. And I will punish, not Babylon, but the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And I will make a man more rare than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. In other words, there's going to be worldwide slaughter as God judges the ungodly and the wicked. The righteous will live, yes, but the ungodly will die, and men will be more rare than wedges of Ophir gold. And verse 13 says, I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of its place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of His fierce anger. The earth is going to be like a chased deer running helter-skelter all over everywhere, like a sheep that no man takes up. That is like an, uh, an undomesticated sheep, a wild sheep, every man turning to his own people, fleeing everyone into his own land, and everyone that is found who hasn't died will be thrust through, and everyone joined to him will fall by the sword. Their children shall be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses spoiled, and their wives ravished." Now, the prophet sees an incredible day. Look at chapter 34 of Isaiah. And here again the prophet Isaiah looks far into the future and says, "'Come near, ye nations, to hear and hearken, ye peoples.'" He's calling the whole world to listen. "'Let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world and all things that come from it.'" So there's no question about whom he has reference. "'The indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, His fury on all their armies, all those armies that have gathered to destroy the people of God in Jerusalem in that great conflagration we know as Armageddon, all Got to interrupt here because in Isaiah 13, he conveniently stopped reading in verse 17. Well, verse, verse 16, you're saying when Jesus comes back, the wives are going to be ravished? When Jesus comes back, he's going to ravish the wives of the people on earth? Okay, verse 17, I will stir up the Medes against them which shall not regard silver, and as for gold, they shall not delight in it. He's going to bring up the Medes to go against people? Wait a minute. He just said, wait, yes, this Babylon was destroyed, but this is talking about the future. Wait, wait a minute. You got some, you got verses right after what you just read about wives being ravished and the Medes being stirred up against them. Uh, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you sure this is not a describing the destruction of Babylon? Are you sure? It just, he conveniently stopped reading when it, when it, stopped following his narrative, okay? Like, no, this is future, okay? Yet, but you haven't established how the future sequence works because supposedly it happens at the end of the tribulation when you already got the sun, the moon, and stars and all of that happening during the tribulation. I still want an answer to that. All those armies will utterly be destroyed. All of them will be slaughtered, verse 2 says, and the slain shall be thrown out, their stench will come up, their carcasses and the mountains shall melt uh, with their blood. 
And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together like a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off from the vine, and like a falling fig from the fig tree. So you know where the Lord and you know where John drew their imagery, don't you? They drew it right from the prophet Isaiah. And the Lord comes with a sword in verse 6, and He comes with a great slaughter, and it starts in the land of Edom. The reason Edom is mentioned is because the southernmost place where that great battle is going to occur is in Edom. Bozrah was the main city in Edom. And the battle of Armageddon, it says in Revelation, is a 16-furlong battle, Revelation 14.20, 1,600-furlong battle, rather. And that's... Wait a minute. Now you jump back to Revelation 14. You, you just jump back to Revelation 14. I, I'm so confused. So is, is, does it happen in Revelation 14 or does it happen in Revelation 19? Is Revelation 14 connected with Revelation 19? Like, you're all over the place. Immediately after the tribulation, the sun, the moon, the stars. You can't go reference things before the end of the tribulation if you say the tribulation ends with Christ coming back in Revelation 19. (laughs) I need a sequence. 200 miles. And if you measure 200 miles, starting with Bozrah, mentioned here in verse 6 in Edom North, it takes you just past Armageddon into Lebanon. And that is the range of that final great destruction in the battle of Armageddon. So the Bible is very, very accurate in describing what verse 8 calls the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompense. That is when God pays back sinful man. Now the prophet Joel speaks about the very same thing. He sees in chapter 2 a locust plague which in a way blots out the sun and blots out the moon because of the tremendous billions of locusts that make the day dark and the night they block out the stars. And he sees those locusts flying in the sky and it's as if the heavens are trembling. And he sees them landing on the ground and it's as if the earth is shuddering. And that's in the beginning of chapter 2 verse 10. Later in the chapter he sees that as an illustration of the ultimate shaking of the heavens and the ultimate shaking of the earth and the ultimate holocaust of divine judgment as He takes you to the final judgment in the 30th and 31st verses of Joel chapter 2. Haggai the prophet in chapter 2 verses 6 and 7 describes the end of the world in the same terms. And you remember Peter preaching at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 quotes the prophecy of Joel. He describes the end of the world... Revelation 19 is not the end of the world if you're going to have a thousand-year reign in Jerusalem. So, again, I need sequence. Matthew 24 says, at the end, immediately after the tribulation. Like, you've got to make it fit your eschatology if you're going to say there's a seven-year tribulation, and at the end of that, the sun, the moon, the stars. And if you're, you've got to fit this in doesn't he? The day will come when the moon will turn to blood and the stars don't give their light anymore and uh, the sun rather turns dark. All of those things are part of this coming holocaust. And you find it also in Revelation 6, 12, and 13 where we find that the sun goes dark and the moon goes out and the stars begin to fall and the people begin to scream for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of the one who is coming. So the Lord's imagery, back now to Matthew 24, is consistent with... 
wait, he just threw out Revelation. If Revelation 6, it happens in Revelation 6, that's not at the end of the tribulation. So how does that fit Matthew 24? (laughs) I'm so confused. Come on now, you've got to be able to do better than, come on. Immediately after the tribulation, and now you're referencing verses that you, that according to your eschatology, happens within the tribulation. It can't be within the tribulation. And at the end of the tribulation, how many sun, moon, and stars are you talking about? The prophets before him and even after him in writing the New Testament. So we see two key words, sequence immediately after the tribulation, and the very obvious one, the setup. Third word, sign. He's not going to deal with it. He's not going to deal with it. Now he's just going to go to verse 30, and he's not going to deal with it. He's not going to deal with the issue in verse 29. The issue in verse 29, you himself has identified that there is a seven-year tribulation, that the tribulation begins with the abomination of desolation, which he says is future. He completely ignores 70 AD out of this. So that after the end of the tribulation, which is after the end of a future seven-year tribulation, at the end of that, the sun, the moon, stars are darkened. Even though he referenced Revelation 6, which would have it happening during the tribulation, and he doesn't even see a possible contradiction or a possible problem or a possible difficulty. And let me say it again. When you're so committed to a particular view, that view becomes the very hermeneutical stumbling block to you. You can't be so committed to a, a particular view that you impose it on the text, even when the text is screaming at you, that doesn't work. That doesn't fit. You just said the seven-year tribulation is a future period, and then you said immediately after that tribulation, the sun, the moon, the stars are darkened. However, according to you, Revelation 6, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, a good portion of Revelation is describing the seven-year tribulation. Well, if it's describing the seven-year tribulation, I can't have the sun, the moon, the stars falling, being darkened, turned to blood, and all of this happened to them in the tribulation, and then at the conclusion of the tribulation, something happens to them again. So something happens to them, and then they come back on, and they're they're perfect again, and then they go away again. You've got to at least explain it, and he doesn't feel he even has to explain it. You know why? Because in many cases, what people want is not an explanation, not to engage the text. Just give me my system. Give me my system of theology that I'm supposed to believe, and I will make it work, even if the text screams at me, that's not working. So we are given no explanation. And we're going to have to stop. We're in an hour and 18 minutes. That is beyond frustrating. We spent an hour and 18 minutes to get a basic answer to immediately after the tribulation, and we've got nothing. Now, the only thing I can do is we say the tribulation there is not the seven year. The tribulation goes from, right? You could extend the tribulation from 70 AD all the way till the conclusion of the thousand-year reign. Because at the conclusion of the thousand-year reign, you have war, and then you have the destruction of the heaven and the earth 
the heavens and the earth because the new heavens and new earth. If you can establish the tribulation period going from 70 AD all the way to the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, then immediately after that tribulation, which and the tribulation would end with the war at the end of the thousand year reign, if you can establish the tribulation all now that would have to include though the thousand years which a lot of people would not like but you've got to you got to figure out some way to make it work and we just heard a futurist not even try to make it fit didn't even attempt to make it fit in any way shape or form didn't even didn't even even address the thing in the text that's just screaming at you that doesn't work in fact he goes to revelation 6 completely contradicting everything it's just it's just maddening all right but we'll stop right there you can email me newsif at yahoo.com newsif at yahoo.com that's newsif at yahoo.com all right thanks for listening god bless